Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Andy Levy, former Fox News and CNN HLN guy and current cable news conscientious objector. I'm a former libertarian who now sits pretty comfortably on the left. Hi, I'm Danielle Moody, former educator and recovering lobbyist. But today, I'm an unapologetic woke commentator on America's threats to democracy. And I'm producer Jesse Cannon, and I'm here to make sure things don't go too far off the rails. We're here to have fun, smart conversations with some of the most knowledgeable and entertaining people in politics, media, and beyond. Our goal is to try and make sense of our current crazy world, our new abnormal, and hopefully even make you laugh through the tears. Hello, and welcome to another bonus episode of The New Abnormal. We thank you so much for being here. Today, we have an extra special guest with Colin Dickey, who talks about his new book, Under the Eye of Power, How Fear of Secret Societies Shape American Democracy. And he'll tell us all about that. But first, let's have some fun. Are you guys ready to listen to some clips? Clip. Clips. <laughs> I, all that hesitation just really doesn't make me feel like there's a lot of it. Because we know what's coming, Jesse. We know <laughs> that you are going to make wow. us feel bad. Well, we really need a vacation, it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, beatings must continue because morale is not up. Oh, shit. <laughs> Here we have the human skid tag Steve Bannon trying out his best preacher imitation as he floats his idea of blame everything on the deep state to make Trump a rebel that you should all get behind. This is a crusade. This is a holy war against the deep state. Donald Trump is our instrument for retribution. I don't want to hear Glenn Youngkin in a vest. I don't want to hear Kemp with his George axe. I don't want to hear it. Donald Trump is our instrument for righteous indignation. You know what's amazing is that Donald Trump is not an instrument to, I don't know, bring more jobs to these people. Donald Trump is not an instrument to bring down, you know, health care costs. Donald Trump is not an instrument to build infrastructure. He's not doing anything for these people. Also, love the fact that he, like, skirts over Brian Kemp and his Georgia accent. And I'm just like, you're fucking basis from the South, dummy. <laughs> well, I agree from, with him. I don't want to hear from Glenn Young kid in his vest. I, no, I mean, that's, I that's 100% the truth. <laughs> yeah, at least we could all agree on that bipartisanship. Donald Trump is an instrument the way if you have a kid and, like, their first day practicing with a violin— Yes. And you just want to die? Yes. That's the kind of instrument that Donald Trump is. I was going more with a uh, French horn of McDonald's farts, but uh, that's my mind of the government. Jesus. (laughs) The rhetoric is unbelievable right now. This guy is literally calling this a crusade. And if you know even a little bit of history, you know, I think that the Crusades weren't the most peaceful of uh, things. And it, it is just unreal to me what we're hearing now. And it's just everything is tied up in religious fervor and and talking about Trump like he's a prophet of God, if not God himself, and talking what? about retribution. I mean, this is an old, this is an angry ass Old Testament God and raining down plagues on people. And this is where we are. It's so fucked up. But the question is, like, who is coming after them? 
Is it an army of gas stoves? Is it the (laughs) M&Ms? Is it Lego figures that have turned into actual action figures? Like, what's coming after them? It's the Barbie movie. Oh, yeah, it is the Barbie movie. Is it young trans track stars? Like, what? (laughs) Who are they waging war against? The woke mob. It's the woke mob, Danielle. I think it's Riot Gosling at a Rob Burr. That's really... uh, (laughs) Oh, right. Oh, yes, because Barbie's their next thing. Got it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Too woke. It really is amazing that the most selfish human being on earth, you now blame that who's coming from is this amorphous thing that no one knows who it is, the deep state. Like they can never name who the deep state is either, just like they can't name the woke. It used to be that like Hillary, this one person was their big thing, but now it's this amorphous blob that they blame everything on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the woke mob, it's Antifa, but it's also the Biden crime family. Oh, I forgot about that. And they're all funded by Soros. Mm. Well, so there's that. At least that one's uh, got a morph to it. And uh, to them, it's a very bad Jewish stereotype that was a cartoon in the 40s that I think they imagine. As one of my friends, Wajahat, says all the time, they're afraid of their shadows because they're <laughs> black. <laughs> yeah. That's very good. All right. Well, moving on along uh, to some other players and sycophants of uh, Cheeto Jesus. Here we have Megan Kelly, a person who is more addicted Jesus. to fame than Hunter Biden is addicted to taking pictures of himself doing wild behavior. And seeing where the wind is blowing, she has some sucking up to do to Mr. Trump, even after he talked about her menstrual cycle being her guiding motivations while she was a moderator at a debate. Let's listen. Have a private audience with former President Donald Trump. When he came into the arena, uh, we met just one-on-one. And, uh, you know, I mean, there were, like, his team was standing nearby, but he and I got a one-on-one together for the first time in years. And it was, frankly, great to see him. You know, all that nonsense between us is under the bridge. And he could not have been more magnanimous. You know, it's just, the thing about Trump is he commands the room. He walks in, and it's not just because he's a former president now, because I knew him before that. He, There's just something about him. It's like an aura that sort of takes over the room. You, there's only one person you can look at. I remember when he was doing Celebrity Apprentice, and Geraldo was on it, and John Rich was on it, and John Rich, I think it was, invited me to a, an event for Celebrity Apprentice, and you went there, and same thing. Trump walks in, like the whole room turns. It's Donald Trump. Well, even more so now. Uh, he could not have been nicer or more generous and um, had some interesting <laughs> thoughts about the debates, whether he's going to attend. I wouldn't bet on it. I would not bet on him attending at least that first Fox News debate if I had to put money on it. You know, it's Trump, so he could change his mind. But um, that was my feeling in having talked to him, though he I didn't commit one way or the other. She is unreal. You pretty much summed it up, Jesse, when you said she's addicted to fame. I have just never, I don't want to say never because we see it, we see it a lot now, but it is just unreal to watch how these people have morphed over the past six, seven years and just turned themselves into whatever they think is going to be good for ratings, is going to be good for their pocketbook. And their paycheck. It's just unreal. I, I, I mean, she is just, she's soulless. I mean, I don't know what to say. You know, th- th- there's there's no there there. It's whatever she thinks is, I mean, she's on the, you know, she's on the woke train. Like everything she says is woke this and woke that. And it's just, it's so gross. 
Yeah, I mean, it's water under the bridge, right? Like how they these people will debase themselves for this man. He's magnanimous. <laughs> like he is bigger than life. He sure as fuck is. But not in the way you think. <laughs> From Steve Bannon, we should be behind, you know, have his back. And I'm just like, it's sick, you know? But I always wondered, why would the people wear the same outfits and sneakers and drink the Kool-Aid? Now I know. <laughs> And all of this for a guy who, if someone came up to him and said, you will be the president, or just said to him, you will get fresh fries at McDonald's if you shove, <laughs> if you cut this person's throat. He wouldn't even think twice, like there would not be a hesitation. Mm-hmm. You would barely finish the sentence before he would be knife in hand. And this is the guy that they all do this for. That that That's what's unbelievable. And I guarantee you... He has no idea what magnanimous means. If she had said that in front of him, he'd be like, magnanimous? Mega-unanimous? Oh, I like that. He wouldn't have been sure if he would should be happy or insulted. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of him, Ed, so we just listened to two people bullshitting about who he is. Now he's going to bullshit his way through a comment he recently got from a supporter on the podium. I have to say, this one was like a... Uh, you can't say new low, new high. It was just a new level of like, wow, this guy really believes he can bluster his way through anything. I'd like to know um, how you can help us in Iowa save our farmland from the CO2 pipeline. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know we're working on that. And you know we had a plan to totally... Uh, it's such a ridiculous situation, isn't it? But we had a plan, and we would have instituted that plan, and it was already. But uh, we will get it back. If we win, that's going to be taken care of. That will be one of the easy things we do. This is when you're in school and the teacher assigns you a 500-word essay. Mm-hmm. And so you just, you spend like, you know, 300 words bullshitting because you have <laughs> no idea. You know, that's when you say, the Iowa pipeline is a land of contrasts. <laughs> in this essay, I will. <laughs> you just start throwing yes. words in, like, solely to get the word count up. And that's exactly what he's doing. He does not have a clue what she's talking about. Not at all. The energy of, I remember a girl in my school, uh, the teacher said, Stephanie, where's Cuba on the map? And she just said the word Cuba till the teacher gave up. <laughs> <laughs> I was really impressed with uh, her, her, yeah, her social aptitude and all, but this, <laughs> not so much. <laughs> Do they still use those little blue books for essays? Oh, Probably God. not. They no. obviously, uh, no, one know, no one knows how to use a pen. No. So. <laughs> oh, God, you just gave me nightmare flashbacks. Thanks for that. Seriously. But it would just be Donald Trump just writing the word bullshit over and over and over and over again and handing it in. <laughs> But my favorite thing is that these pipelines, you know, weren't even a thing that they had to deal with during his administration. And so, yeah, we had a plan for it then. Yeah. Okay, buddy. Yeah, we had a plan for it. But then, you know, something happened, but it's the first thing we'll get to. Fucking dummy. All right. So as we know, we have a reoccurring segment on this program where we talk about Louisiana Senator John Kennedy trying to out Louis Gomer, Louis Gomer, and well... You go, boy. You've done it again. You go, boy. Well, let me say for the record, I'm a big Subway fan. Me too. Uh, <laughs> that, uh, that foot-long Titan turkey, I think they call it, will Love make it. you very regular. Oh, um, <laughs> You're number two, that again. Number, uh, <laughs> n- n-
What? Even the Fox and Friends hosts were like, Jesus Christ, dude. <laughs> what the hell? Oh, my God. Uh, well, I guess I think what he's saying is that's how he manages to spew so much bullshit. I was going to oh. <laughs> gonna Yes, bravo, Andy. I was going to say, give it something. Yeah. Eat not that fresh. That, that, this is their rebrand after having to distance themselves from Jared Fogel. Subway, we help you spew bullshit. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, my. What a weird dude. Just, I mean, shit for brains, you know? Just, that's where we are. No more Kennedys. We, no more Kennedys. <laughs> I like that. I feel like, Jesse, you hate us. You know mm. what I'm saying? Is that what this it is? This is right. You wonder why there's a pause before we say how excited we are for clips. (laughs) And then you give us Steve Bannon, Megyn Mm -hmm. Kelly, Trump, and Louisiana's John Kennedy. In my defense, all I'm saying is it gets the clicks. (laughs) (laughs) I have a mandate here. (laughs) All right. Putting profit before people. Yep. Yeah, that's 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 me. The Jesse Cannon way. <laughs> wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part, for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When picking a commerce platform for your business, you have two choices. Or... I prefer, don't you? That's the sound you'll hear when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell, online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Shopify is the best all-in-one commerce platform capable of handling your business's complexity no matter how big you grow. Step up to Shopify and harness the best converting checkout and the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands like Rothy's, Allbirds, Brooklinen, and so much more. You're probably thinking, sure, but migrating is going to be a headache. Shopify's app store has the migration apps you need to migrate your products, orders, customers, and more from every major e-commerce platform to Shopify. If you're anything like me, you're one of those don't put me in a box people. Everyone who knows me knows I'm a don't put me in a box person. And thankfully, Shopify never will, because with Shopify, control of your brand and business is always in your hands, from your storefront look to your back office operations. I hate when checking out from an online store and then having to pull out my credit card and type in all those numbers. A Shopify store remembers my shipping address and payment information. So if I'm on the couch and my wallet is on the kitchen counter... 
I don't even have to get up. Stop leaving sales on the table. Switch your business to Shopify and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their business. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash abnormal, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com slash abnormal, all lowercase. Shopify.com slash abnormal. The United States was born in paranoia. This is the opening sentence of Colin Dickey's new book, Under the Eye of Power, How Fear of Secret Societies Shapes American Democracy, and he spends the rest of the book showing just how that works. Dickey is no stranger to the more esoteric sides of America. He's also the author of Ghostland and American History in Haunted Places and the Unidentified Mythical Monsters, Alien Encounters, and Our Obsession with the Unexplained. And he joins me now. Colin, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me on. So in the intro to Under the Eye of Power, you kind of set yourself up in opposition to Richard Hofstadter's famous 1964 Harper's essay, The Paranoid Style in American Politics, in which he posited that while conspiratorial thinking is absolutely a part of our democracy, it mainly exists along the edges of that democracy. In contrast, your book argues that paranoia is at its very heart. Yeah, I mean, I think that that essay, that Hofstetter essay that you mentioned, which has become really kind of, you know, received common wisdom for a lot of people in the in the how long, 60, 70 years since, you know, it's really this idea, yeah, that that America is mostly a kind of sane, rational democracy. And that while there are these kind of fringe people, they they really don't interrupt mainstream society. And as long as there is a kind of stable and rational center to the country that we can beat these back, which is what Hofstetter believed was happening with the the rise of the John Birch Society and the, the Barry Goldwater campaign in 1964. And I think, you know, once I started to actually do the research and look into these conspiracy theories around, you know, various secret societies, be they, you know, the Freemasons, the Illuminati, or, you know, in Hofstetter's time, the idea that the communists were putting fluoride in the water, it turns out that these are a, a kind of regular and recurring, almost like rote element of sort of American political democracy and American culture. And I kind of wanted to reframe how we thought about these things less as exceptions to the rule and more a part of how American democracy conceives of itself, because I think we need to do a much more active and proactive job of of meeting these things head on. So along those lines, you write about the Salem witch trials and the McCarthyism of the 1950s and how we think of them as linked, obviously shown most famously in Arthur Miller's The Crucible. But you think there are dangers in doing this? Yeah, exactly. I mean, right, because those are the things that I think we're taught. That's, you know, the kind of sort of stories of these kind of moral panics that we grow up with. And, you know, I think it's very, you know, important and valid to teach both of those. But I think part of the problem is is they're taught as exceptions. They're taught as kind of two moments in American history when things got out of hand and they're used as kind of cautionary tales of, you know, when people get a little exuberant or irrational or get into a tizzy, these are the kind of dangerous things that can result. But They've only really happened twice, and we don't really need to worry too much about them because as long as we're sort of vigilant, we we won't see these things again and again. And again, I think, you know, in fact, what happens is these things happen pretty regularly. I mean, I grew up in the 1980s, you know, child of the 80s and a, you know, a metalhead. So I'm I'm very comfortable right. <laughs> and I, you know, very much remember the the satanic panic of the 1980s, yep. which, you know, we, you know, us, us listening to like Iron Maiden and Judas Priest just thought was kind of a weird joke, but, you know. <laughs> 
resulted in a lot of people being sentenced to jail on entirely fabricated and fictitious charges, many going to prison for, for years and decades before they were exonerated. And almost as soon as the satanic panic was over in, in the 90s, it, it was more or less forgotten. You know, so and these these again, these sort of like panics happen over and over again. And then as soon as like they, they sort of burn themselves out, they're brushed from the record so that each time the next one happens, it seems brand new. It seems like we haven't faced anything like this since, you know, McCarthy or whatever, when in fact, we've had to deal with it dozens of times since then. We just keep forgetting about it. Yeah, it really is amazing as you go through the book and just list, you know, and talk about basically panic after panic. So let's talk about what's maybe the Ur secret society in American history, the Freemasons. We've got over 200 years of Masonic conspiracies. There's the symbology of the dollar bill, the architecture in Washington, D.C. We've got Dan Brown books. We've got Nick Cage movies, all the classics. How did this get started and why has it been so enduring? Yeah, as you mentioned, I mean, the Freemasons are really sort of a bedrock kind of element of American culture. And what was fascinating to me when I actually started doing the research is that, you know, the founders in the in the 18th century, you know, when Freemasonry really took hold in the United States, were very public and open about it. You know, they would have these lavish parades. Everybody knew about the Freemasons. There was no element of secrecy whatsoever or very little beyond, you know, these kind of esoteric rites. But those seemed sort of minimal because what people like Ben Franklin and George Washington, when they were sort of envisioning this country, what they wanted was a form of kind of aristocracy, but one that wasn't based on lineage and hereditary descent like, you know, England had. So the Freemasons kind of offered a way for the American like founders to distinguish themselves from, you know, the middle class or whatever, and sort of create this aristocracy that was based on sort of privilege and social status rather than, you know, inherited ancestry. And, you know, that's why there's all this Freemasonry stuff in the sort of founding of the country. That's why that, you know, the, the eye of Providence ends up on the dollar bill. There's kind of all this stuff. And that doesn't really change until the 1820s, when by that point, Freemasonry has spread so large and it is, it's now much more, you know, middle class and, and sort of working class people who are trying to use that same mechanism to, to move up the ranks that it sort of becomes a kind of weird, you know, the, the weird and esoteric rites become more and more important. They become kind of like these like goth fraternity hazing rituals. <laughs> and it culminates finally in 1826 in upstate New York when a disgruntled Freemason threatens to publish the rites publicly and is abducted by a bunch of Freemasons and his, he's never found, you know, sort of presumably murdered by the Freemasons, which triggers finally a backlash in, in the American public where finally they start to ask like, you know, who are these people? Why are they meeting in secret? What What is this going to do to American democracy that we have so many of these people that seem to be in levers of power and also sort of beholden to these secret rights rather than public democracy? And that brings us to the Illuminati, hell, Eris, which is also these days conflated with the Freemasons, but in fact has completely different origins. Yeah, right. So yeah, so the the actual literal Illuminati was a, a group that existed for barely 10 years in Bavaria, Germany in the 1770s. And it was sort of vaguely modeled on the Freemasons, but it was kind of going to be its own little group. And the authorities got wind of it and they arrested them and squashed them. And that was the end of the Illuminati historically. But they took on this sort of strange afterlife in the wake of the French Revolution because people were looking at the chaos and the violence and the bloodshed of the French Revolution, trying to understand what had happened. 
And starting with a Scottish Freemason and a, and a Jesuit priest in France, they started alleging that the, the Illuminati had somehow survived and they were behind this whole thing. And the Illuminati from that point on becomes this kind of plausible explanation to, you know, mechanism for explaining anything that seems you know, unexpected or crazy or unexpectedly violent or dramatic, you can always say, you know, oh, the 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 Illuminati are secretly behind it. And, you know, the fact that they're so invisible just means they're that much more powerful. And so the Illuminati sort of makes its way across the Atlantic to the United States. And, you know, George Washington is writing letters to people saying, yes, of course, of course, the Illuminati is behind the French Revolution. Everybody knows that. And it becomes <laughs> such a kind of testament of faith that it influences the 1800 election between Adams and Jefferson. So our first real kind of contested presidential election after Washington's two terms is already being heavily influenced and perhaps sort of decided by the sort of widespread use of conspiracy theories to tar the other side. And I didn't even realize, but in the book, you sort of draw a correlation between Adams passing the Alien and Sedition Act and this fear of the Illuminati. Right, exactly. Because the Alien and Sedition Act is, you know, how do we ensure that foreign saboteurs don't corrupt America, poison our new democracy? And so the Alien and Sedition Act comes at the same time that there is this this increasing panic and terror around, you know, this mysterious group known as the Illuminati who have already destroyed France and now maybe infiltrated the United States too. Yeah, it's it's unreal. And look, I could literally talk to you about the Masons and the Illuminati for hours, but my producer and your publicist probably wouldn't be happy about that. So let's jump to the post-Civil War period. In the intro to the book, you write, every time a traditionally marginalized segment of America has attempted to fight for equity, conspiracy theories have been used to suppress or curtail that fight. With that in mind, tell us about both the Molly Maguires and the Haymarket trials. Yeah. So again, I, you know, I, I didn't set out to, to write about, you know, socialists or anarchists or communists per se, but I did find that once I decided that the subject of the book was going to be any real or imagined group of people working in secret to, you know, commit violence or distort American democracy, I, I ended up sort of having to kind of confront a lot of sort of unlikely subjects. And, and as you mentioned, you know, both the Molly Maguires and the Haymarket incident in Chicago in 1886 are sort of structurally very identical to this idea idea that there's this group of people who are sort of invisible, but everywhere. And, you know, and so, you know, what happens basically with the Molly Maguires is a coal mining strike in rural Pennsylvania. In order to break the strike, there is a, a Pinkerton agent who is sent to influence them. And he is sort of used to kind of gather up information, not just about the union that is striking, but this sort of, again, kind of real, but also kind of exaggerated group of Irish saboteurs and terrorists known as the Molly Maguires. And this specter of the this Irish terrorist group, which is sort of, you know, is there, is not there, is sort of, you know, it's very difficult to, to objectively kind of describe how much they were actually responsible for. But it gets used to basically justify a, a really violent strike breaking and the sort of trumped up execution of a lot of people, many of whom had nothing to do with any of the violence, but were sort of used as scapegoats and, and executed by the state, basically working on behalf of the uh, coal mining companies and the railroads. Then 
that becomes the template for a lot of anti-socialist, anti-anarchist, anti-union movements. And most famously with the the Haymarket incident where cops are attempting to break up a, a rally by some workers and a bomb is thrown at the cops. To this day, nobody knows who threw the bomb, you know, whether or not it was a Pinkerton agiprop or an actual saboteur, nobody knows. And the trial, they didn't even really bother to find out. Instead, they once again, rounded up the kind of main figures in the labor movement and tried them on conspiracy, executed five people and destroyed in many ways, you know, or, or took a, a great amount of the wind out of the sails of the labor movement and um, pushed off a lot of the gains that we wouldn't get until the 20th century. And in fact, what you write that was so interesting to me was that the whole point of the trial, you said it was sort of important for the trial to not be about individuals, actual potentially guilty individuals, but it was important for the trial to be about this sort of amorphous them that were trying to change American life. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, so the attorney general during the like, you know, opening arguments, he says, you know, it is inconsequential whether or not the man who threw the bomb is in the courtroom today. And, you know, one of the things is after the Haymarket explosion, there was such a panic and, you know, anarchists and socialists were being rounded up by the day, you know, labor newspapers were being, you know, raided, people were being arrested on the flimsiest of charges. And I think that it's important to note that if they had found the actual saboteur, they could have tried him. And honestly, if they wanted to just pin it on somebody, they would have gotten away with it. That level of, you know, hysteria and paranoia that had like, you know, worked its way through Chicago, they would have taken anybody. And so the fact that they really could have put up anybody on trial for the actual bombing and instead chose very explicitly to try the heads of the labor movement and say that they were sort of conspirators who were themselves more responsible for the explosion than whoever might have actually threw the bomb speaks, I think, to a great deal to what they were trying to accomplish with those trials. Yeah, absolutely. That was just fascinating to me. Okay, jumping again this time to the early 20th century, let's talk briefly about the newly reborn Ku Klux Klan. You write of a form letter used by the second Klan's founder, William Joseph Simmons, uh, that read, real men whose oaths are inviolate, listing as attributes of such men, Christianity, white super supremacy, protection of our pure American womanhood, states' rights, and the promotion of pure Americanism. And all I kept thinking was, man, that sounds really familiar. Yeah. I mean, the the again, when I was doing the research and sort of like, you know, tracing these things, the parallels were depressingly common. And yeah, so the the second clan, the clan that, that arises in the 1920s, which grows sort of basically out of Griffith's Birth of a Nation as a response to a different set of social movements than the first clan, which was a much more explicitly terrorist organization in the post-Civil War era. The second clan operates, you know, as you mentioned, that sort of that that kind of open posting, that open call for members as a kind of um, almost like a multi-level marketing scheme. You know, its whole thing is about just growing membership. That's why there's this wide cast of villains that they're after. They're they're not just sort of anti-black, they're anti-Jew, they're anti-Catholic, they're anti-immigrant. Their justification, as you as you see in there, is this idea of protecting the sort of, you know, vulnerable American woman who is at, you know, always perpetually under siege by these, you know, foreign monsters who are, you know, going to do sort of, you know, harm to her. And that becomes the rhetorical rallying cry that fuels a lot of these, you know, not just the Klan in the 20s, but also the anti-Catholic movements of the of the 19th century in the 1830s. And it extends 
pretty much through to the modern age until about the 1970s when, with the rise of feminism, women are sort of reconceived as less being these kind of passive, vulnerable objects to be protected. And so the the paranoia just shifts to children. And that's, you know, the satanic panic and sort of the current fear about quote unquote groomers is sort of the same textbook, just with a slightly different object at its heart. Yeah. Okay. And then we get to the 1950s, which gives us mind control and the commies. And it turns out sometimes the conspiracies are true. MK Ultra and et cetera. Yeah, right. And again, you know, when when I sort of set out to look for, you know, stories about real and imagined groups working behind the scenes in a coordinated fashion to violate laws or distort democracy, eventually you have to face the facts that the the two organizations that best fit that profile are the CIA and the FBI. And, you know, the work that the CIA did with MKUltra and the, the work the FBI did, particularly during the 60s and civil rights era to infiltrate and try and undermine civil rights movements uh, and the student left, I think creates a new kind of awareness of how these kind of conspiracy theories work and a new level of paranoia Prior to the 50s and 60s, most of these conspiracy theories are set up around the idea that the government itself is under attack by these foreign agents, you know, the Illuminati or the French or whomever. What happens in the post-war era is Americans start to believe that it is the government itself who is perpetrating these, these conspiracies and the government itself is rotten and problematic and we need to protect ourselves against our own government. But it also kind of, at least coming into modern day, it feels like it kind of becomes a synthesis of those two things where, yes, it's the government, but it's the government being run or being controlled by the Freemasons, the Illuminati, the Jews, the Catholics, you know, insert whatever you want there. Yeah, exactly. And right. And one of the things that's really happened in the past 20 or 30 years is this increasing synthesis of these disparate conspiracy theories kind of coming together. So like one of the things about kind of conspiratorial belief is that, you know, among these community of believers, there is no cultural capital in being skeptical. And so if you are somebody who, you know, believes that the Jews are running the media and you meet someone who believes that actually the media is run by lizard aliens from the planet Anukai, neither of you really benefits from, you know, telling the other one they're full of BS. So what you do instead is you say, oh, maybe these two things are one and the same. Maybe, you know, the Jews are working for the lizard people. And so so all of these things start to like blur and blend into one sort of grand synthesized conspiracy theory. And it involves the government, but it also involves the deep state. And it also involves all these anti-Semitic tropes. It also involves these sort of outlandish alien beliefs. They all just get fed into this blender and everything becomes kind of you know, one and the same in this homogenized mass of paranoia. Yeah, it really is amazing. And I, I'm getting low on time, so I, which annoys me because I wanted to talk about David Icke and the lizard people stuff because that is just so bizarre to me. But instead, what I'll ask you uh, as sort of an exit question is something you write toward the end of the book when you're talking about QAnon is you basically say it's it's very important to understand that this is not some unique and abnormal thing, unlike anything in America's history, and it didn't spring from nothing. And to me, that just perfectly bookended your point in the intro about uh, how we can't act like the Salem trials and McCarthyism were outliers, right? Right, exactly, right. I think that for a lot of people, you know, who had inherited this Hofstadter belief that as long as there was a stable centrism, we didn't have to worry about these fringe actors. You know, the last 10 years, became, you know, came as a total shock because, you know, all of a sudden 
you know, a lot more people than we we assumed were willing to believe in really far-fetched conspiracy theories, you know, whether they're about QAnon or, you know, the election being stolen from Trump by the deep state or the great replacement theory, which has been responsible for multiple mass killings right now. And so I think we really have to reframe how we think about conspiratorial thinking because we can't keep being surprised when these things happen, especially when they happen over and over and over again. And they they sort of vanish from consciousness as soon as they're done. It's such an important point. And it, it's sort of I, I feel kind of bad now because my whole thing has been saying I, I, I'm a huge lover of conspiracy theories in, in the sense that I am fascinated by them, not that I believe them. One of the things that I've been saying a lot now is QAnon and all this stuff has taken all the fun out of conspiracy theories. They used to be just harmless fun. And, you know, I could talk about harp and chemtrails and all this stuff. And honestly, what reading this book has shown me is these things were never fun. <laughs> and in fact, they were even the, the most bizarre ones where you're like, well, surely only like one percent of the people believe that. It turns out that's not the case. And all these things also just sort of, as you point out over and over in the book, each one of these primes the pump for the next one. And so ultimately, they're all incredibly dangerous. I mean, you know what? Uh, believe in Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster. I mean, you know, like, those, that's fine. <laughs> believe in ghosts. Ghosts, Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, those are like, in terms of, of actual, you know, threat to our, you know, civilization and democracy, those are the ones that I think are are pretty chill pretty cool. You don't have to worry too much about that. Yeah. It's, it, yeah. I think I started this project because in the nineties, I used to listen to coast to coast AM. Of course. I used to love, you know, yeah. and then sort of asking myself, when did coast to coast AM go from being just a fun, cool conversation about aliens and Bigfoot to the government is coming for your guns kind right. of thing. You know? So like, you know, I was really trying to understand when things stop being fun. And as you say, like what I found out is actually they really haven't been fun for a long time. <laughs> yeah. The book is Under the Eye of Power, How Fear of Secret Society Shapes American Democracy. It's out now. It's a, it's a fabulous book. And Colin Dickey, thank you so much for being here to talk about it. Thank you so much for having me on. I've had a great time. This was super fun. Hope you enjoyed checking out this episode of The New Abnormal. We're back every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend and keep the conversation going. This podcast is a Daily Beast production with production by Jesse Cannon and Seamus Calder. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.